you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. We are resuming the sermon series that we began last week, the Songs of Advent. We're going to read verses 57 through 80 this morning. Our text is really 67 through 79, but we're going to read the whole thing. This is the second of those songs. And you'll remember last week we studied Mary's song. Uh, We're turning this morning to Zachariah's song. Luke opens his book by telling us about a priest whose name was Zachariah. He's married to a woman named Elizabeth. And the Bible calls them righteous before God, which doesn't ever mean that they didn't have sin. It simply means that that they lived their lives directionally in faith towards the Lord. They oriented their life toward God, and they recognized that he would have to be the one to save them. They trusted him to do that. But then Luke tells us that for them there is great pain and heartache. They were unable to have children. And you can tell from the way that Luke tells that story that that's actually been the pressing issue of much of their prayers over many years. We catch up this morning by finding Zechariah on priestly duties at the time. He's chosen to go burn incense at the altar. And while he's inside offering that, the people are outside praying. The angel Gabriel appears before Zechariah. He's terrified. The angel says, your prayer has been heard. The Lord will give you a son, which will be the fulfillment of the passage that we read earlier in the the worship service, Malachi chapter 4. Here's a, a son coming who will be like a new Elijah. He's one filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many to the Lord. He will prepare the way for the coming of the Christ. Now remember... Zechariah has been praying a prayer for a son for many years. And yet when the answer comes, he's full of doubts. He and his wife are old. They're past what you would think of as childbearing years. And so he basically says to the Lord, how could I believe you? And in what can only be described by scholars as as a little bit of humor, a tone from the angel Gabriel, the angel says, here's how you'll know, Luke 1, 19, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So, we fast forward nine months. Zechariah has been unable to hear or speak. And yet he has been pondering the words of the angel. He's been studying the scriptures. He's been in prayer prayer himself. Pick up now with me Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Here's God's word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father. This is how we know that Zechariah is not just mute, but he's also deaf. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. 
And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask, having read your word, that you would prepare our ears to hear and give us those ears that you would desire us to have so that your word would go forth and that promise from Isaiah 55 would be true, that your word would not return void, but you would accomplish the purpose for which you send it. And Father, you know what a wretched, sinful, crooked stick I am. I ask that you would use my mouth to communicate your word to your people and point them to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever prayed for something for a a long time and received no answer. When that happens, your heart can move in one of two directions. That is, you can lean into that prayer with faith. In other words, you can learn to trust that the, the answer which has not yet come is because the Lord knows better than you do. He wants for you something better than what you would have chosen for yourself, and he's in that no answer, saying to you, I know and you can trust me. But the alternative is that you can likewise grow in bitterness. And in bitterness, you start to believe that the Lord delights to withhold good things from you. In your best moments, laced with cynicism, you might say, well, God just knew I wouldn't be able to handle that kind of blessing anyway. But then with time, as bitterness grows you will by nature start assigning terrible motives to the Lord. Well, he must just enjoy watching me suffer. I'm not clearly going to be able to be brought out of this. He's not going to change my circumstances. And then sometimes your bitterness, which is dwelling in your heart, begins to take shape over questioning the Lord's goodness. And you you say things out loud that you would later regret Jesus says, of course, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In 2017, after a season of unanswered prayers and growing disappointment, I told Susan and I told the Lord that I was pretty doubtful that he would move us to Auburn to be able to be a part of planting the church that God was building there. 
Why in the world would I say that? Why in the world would I doubt the Lord? Because of a series of unanswered prayers. And all it took for me to doubt his goodness was just simply that he had not answered yes. And here my family sits in perhaps the sweetest years of ministry in our whole lives. And I tell you that now because the Lord didn't answer my other prayers because he intended to be better to me than what I would have ever chosen for myself. Do you ever say things or pray things that reveal that deep down you actually doubt the Lord's goodness? That's what happened with Zechariah. He'd been praying for a son for decades And when the angel finally told him that his prayer was answered, Zechariah's mouth burst forth with doubt. And I suspect his remorse was instantaneous. God made him deaf and mute. He couldn't speak and he couldn't hear. You see, God decided to bless him with nine months of silence. So that in that silence, he could think about what he'd said And what he really believed. Nine months of silence for the song of God's faithfulness to drown out the noise of Zechariah's doubting heart. I wonder if there are not places in your own heart where you, even today, are doubting the Lord's goodness and faithfulness to you. Then you may be able to relate to Zechariah. And you might pray for God to do in your heart what he graciously did for this old man. Zechariah is going through the motions of worship. And his doubts about God's faithfulness, God's willingness to do good, created in his heart a kind of noise. Noise which made it utterly impossible to praise God. And so our text teaches us that it's only when God's faithfulness speaks louder than your doubts that you learn praise. We have three points this morning. The passage breaks down that way naturally. Salvation through visitation, salvation through covenant, salvation through tender mercy. We'll start with salvation through visitation. After nine months, you can imagine, of of reflection and silence, conviction, the work of the Holy Spirit, this man bursts forth with praise. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel. Now, this is more than an old man and an old woman finally having son, a son. This is praise which is rooted in what God has been revealing to him over these last months. Verse 68, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Which means God has actually entered into the human condition. And having seen that human condition, he acted to save his people. How do we know that that's what Zechariah means? Because that word visited is the root word from which we get the word microscope or telescope or the scope that sits on top of your deer rifle. And that that word scope includes this capacity to see, to look. And in the original language, there's a prefix which is added to that word to tell us that God has, has come and intensely looked and seen his people. So why do the translators use the word visited? Because what do you do when you go to visit someone? You are there to see them, to look upon them, to know what's going on with them. It's a perfect description. The high king of heaven left his throne and came to earth 
to visit. You ever get the sense that God is distant from you? That he doesn't see you? That he doesn't know what you, what you need? From, for all who first heard Zachariah's song, that's exactly how they'd been feeling for most of their lives. You see, God had not spoken through the mouth of a prophet for 460 years. That, that Malachi 4 passage was the last words that God spoke So Zechariah's praise is meant to encourage and comfort anyone who's ever felt a sense that God was distant, that he doesn't even see you and he doesn't know your need. Which is why this is perhaps the most important theme of this entire song, the visitation of God to sinners. That's why that very same phrase is used in verse 78. When When the song wraps up, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And yet, even if you could believe that God has visited us, how many of us have grown callous to the comfort of this visit? How many of us have have forgotten that praise is due for a God who would visit and redeem us? Do we not take it for granted? Somehow, as if it was owed to us that God could come to earth. That is not the way that Greek-speaking people would have heard this particular phrase because Greek-speaking Gentiles would have heard that word and thought in military contexts, like the commanding general who comes to oversee his troops. His visitation every time is a day of reckoning. The troops are ready. If they are, are prepared to fight and go into battle, they receive commendation. But if they are not ready, his visit becomes a terrifying event. And the Jews would have heard this in a very similar way. They would not take for granted the visitation of God because the Old Testament is constantly speaking that God is going to visit his people. And the nature of God's visit in the Old Testament is always determined by the condition of the hearts that he finds when he comes. In other words, they knew that he could come for judgment or he could visit his people to save. And Zechariah says, praise God, he's actually come to visit in order to redeem us. And then you notice verse 69, this this phrase, horn of salvation in the house of David. You can think about a ram. You can think about an ox with horns on its head. It's this symbol of strength and power from a new king. Zechariah is not talking about his son John. John's not from David's line. You see, this song is also a prophecy. The, the Christ child who hasn't even been born yet. But Zechariah says he's coming with power. And that, that horn gives us the sense that he is coming to fight for his people. What does God promise to accomplish through this visitation? Verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And so you have this idea of redemption. But you also have this idea that the enemies are not going to negotiate a release without a fight. And so you have this image of a Messiah who saves. And the first hearers hear that almost entirely politically. Why would they hear it that way? Well, because the Jews had been held captive by enemies many times. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks. In Zechariah's day, it's the Romans. 
But you see, this is a great hymn of praise because it's a promise that God is going to redeem from all enemies, even the fiercest. You remember, of course, from the beginning of Genesis, you learn that the real enemy of God's people is, is Satan himself. When Satan ensnared Adam and his posterity in sin, he bound all of the human race to all the miseries that you and I experience in this life, but he also bound them to the sentence of death and to the pains of hell forever. Of course, Satan is not going to relinquish God's people without a fight. And so the Son of God took the fight into the wilderness Where tempted, he remained absolutely faithful. He took the fight to the cross where he passively obeyed his father to death. Then he took the fight to the grave where he decisively overcame every enemy, including death. And then in rising from the dead, he defeated Satan and death and hell in this crushing blow. Redemption. It's a biblical word, isn't it? Well, it's really defined as a release from bondage through the payment of a price. Jesus paid the price to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray of tidings of comfort and joy. You see, when God's faithfulness speaks louder than your doubts, you learn praise. So Zechariah's song of salvation through visitation, but he also sings of salvation through covenant. God did all of this, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. If you were with us last week when we studied Mary's song, You'll remember that Mary uses almost identical vocabulary. God's faithfulness to the promises he made to our fathers, to Abraham. And so Zechariah expands that idea by saying the way God displays his character of mercy is through a covenant. And the Bible is is full of covenant language. That's the reason that so many of our sister churches in the PCA are, are called covenant Presbyterian Church. It's a great name. In the Old Testament, God dealt with his people through covenant relationships. Palmer Robertson explains a covenant by saying it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That means he makes promises and he binds himself to those promises through the shedding of blood. Abraham and the smoking fire pot, Genesis chapter 15, animals torn to pieces. God puts Abraham to sleep and God in that smoking firepot walks between those pieces. He's basically saying, if I'm not faithful to the words that I declare to you this day, may I be torn to pieces. But he goes beyond that to say, since you're asleep, Abraham, if you break the covenant, I'll shed my own blood for that too. And the gospel is so beautifully pictured. Hebrews 6 says that the reason That God uses an oath and and connects it to a covenant is because it's impossible for God to lie. 
You, you know this, don't you? Whenever a person pledges an oath, they have to pledge to something which is higher than themselves, greater than themselves. And Hebrews 6 says, well, there's no one higher or greater than God. And so when he makes a promise, he pledges to be faithful to that promise by swearing an oath on himself. So that, Hebrews 6, 18, we who have fled for refuge might find strong encouragement to hold fast to set the hope before us. And then he says, we have this like a sure anchor, a steadfast anchor to the soul. Encouragement to hold fast, a sure and steady anchor. That's why he saves through a covenant through a bond in blood which is sovereignly administered. But I wonder if, if some of you deep down think, well, he's still sort of slow to answer. Maybe even in some small ways he's unfaithful. Maybe in some small ways it would be impossible for him to keep his promises Some of you are doing that because you look at your own sin and you say, well, how could God be faithful to me when I have been so unfaithful to him? How could he keep his promises to remove my sins from me? Or maybe you look at your current circumstances and you feel the real true weight of pain and grief and loss and you question whether God really meant it. When he said, oh, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And you may be in a spot today where you're saying, God, if this is what your faithfulness looks like, I would shudder to feel what unfaithfulness was. That's why it's a covenant. So that you and I would look beyond daily circumstances and remember big promises. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Yes, God is always faithful to unfaithful people. There would be no one else to be faithful to. Because you're unfaithful and so am I. He's faithful to anxious and doubting people. Not because you've got something already within you that somehow warms your heart. Because you're just likable. No. It's because covenants prove the character of the one to whom we are dealing bound by the shedding of his own blood God makes big promises and he keeps them so you can trust your life to his faithfulness because he swore on his own life to prove his faithfulness and that's exactly what he did when he sends his son to the cross it's to secure a new covenant a new bond held by better blood So that you and I would rest secure in his faithfulness on every single word he said. Because your salvation comes through a covenant. You can trust not only that God has done good for you once. But that everything that happens in your life is for your good. And he will give you everything you ever need. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The purpose of your salvation through a covenant was found in verse 74. That we being delivered from the hand of the enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
Those who were with us during our study in Exodus will hear something in that that sounds familiar. Why did God save his people from slavery to Pharaoh? So that they would be free to serve him. In fact, that Exodus salvation presents before us kind of a, a universal principle. As created beings, you and I were always made by God to serve him. And when you do not serve him, you aren't free to serve something else. You aren't actually free to even serve yourself. Your service to these lesser things always, 100% of the time, becomes enslavement. And so if you make that sports team your little God, then you live and die by the outcome. If you make your career your God, then you will sacrifice everything on the altar to worship that wretched idol. If you make your children your God, they will disappoint you deeply while they also crumble under the weight of your helicopter worship. To those who thought that their biggest problem was the occupying armies of Rome. Zechariah sings of a spiritual deliverance in which God's people actually do become free of sin and guilt and punishment and Satan and destruction. It's a deliverance that frees us to serve the Lord without fear. And that phrase is so crucial. John Calvin says those who have an inward struggle Whether God is favorable or hostile to them, whether he accepts or rejects their services, might, on occasion, anxiously, in worship of God, be able to worship him, but they will never sincerely and honestly obey him. Before men can truly worship God, they must obtain peace of conscience. That's what God provides you in Christ. So that in Christ, God did all that was ever necessary to please his own demands. How do you serve God without fear? You serve him by faith in Christ. He's already delivered you from the hands of Satan and bondage to sin. God has already done enough to satisfy himself by Christ's obedience. Therefore, just serve the God that you were meant to serve and do it by faith and do not stumble over yourself. Am I really good enough to be a part? No, you're not. Serve me without fear, says the king. It's that faith which is counted as holiness and righteousness before him. Through the sacrifice of Christ, God's faithfulness speaks louder than your doubts and your fears. When God's faithfulness speaks louder than your doubts, you learn praise. So Zechariah sang a song of visitation, uh, salvation through visitation, salvation through covenant, but finally salvation through tender mercies. After years of unanswered prayers asking God for a son, Zechariah started to think of God as a father who was, in some ways, predisposed to harshness. I mean, he might show me mercy in the bitter end, but only very reluctantly. And at verse 76, this turns from a song of prophecy about Jesus to a prophecy of his own son, John. Look at 76. 
And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And yet even in this, you can see what Zechariah has learned over the last nine months of silence. Why is John called to this work? Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. I'm going to tell you a story that you will think is intended to simply make me look bad. And it does. But in the end, I think it tells us something beautiful about that very phrase. My heart sunk, and I got that pit in my stomach when I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw those blue lights following me, taking a 10-year-old daughter to a birthday party. We had just moved to this small town in Mississippi. And when he pulled me over, I asked the officer if he might be willing to just give me a warning since I was new to the area. I didn't actually know that the speed limit was 45 here. And so he said, well, you can take that up with the judge. Money was tight for us at the time, and so I thought, well, I'm just going to do that. I'm going to take that up with the judge. So I went to the judge, and I explained, well, we're kind of new to town. Wondered if you'd be willing to show me mercy. And the judge was having none of it. He was not interested at all in applying the gospel to my speeding ticket. Mr. Zellner, were you going 55 in a 45-mile-an-hour zone? Well, I had scoured the Internet just enough to be prepared to have a backup plan if he wasn't interested in the gospel. Uh, Your Honor, since the officer is present, I wonder if the officer could present evidence to prove that he had calibrated and checked his radar gun for accuracy before he began his shift that day because I didn't know that I was breaking the speed limit. How can we really be sure that his gun was accurate? Well, I glanced over at the prosecuting attorney. He rolls his eyes, and he asked me how fast I thought I was going. Your Honor, uh, with all due respect, it would be unwise in this moment for me to speculate as to whether I was speeding. It seems to me that without proof of the accuracy of the radar gun, it's simply the officer's word against mine. Well, whether my evidence was any good or not, you hear, don't you? I was was asking the court for mercy. And surprisingly, I got it. But it came with a scoured look from a judge who was tired of dealing with me. Mr. Zellner, you are on 30 days probation. If you speed and get another ticket in the next month, you will be fined for both offenses. For now, you are free to go without a fine. And so reluctantly, through that scoured look of disgust, the judge had shown me mercy. And I can't help but wonder if that is not how many of us think of the Lord. That it is only through desperate pleas on very pitiful grounds 
that God the judge, who's eventually just tired of, of dealing with you, will in disgust extend mercy just to get you out of his face. That's not what verse 78 says. Verse 78 says it's actually from the overflowing heart of tenderness. The kind of tenderness that a father has, but a judge could never have. And so when you, like Zechariah, would wrongly think, God is probably predisposed just to being harsh toward me, you should remember that there is a big difference between mercy and tender mercy. It's from a fatherly heart of tender mercy that God caused the sunrise to visit you. That is light to shine from on high. And what was that purpose for that light? Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And in John 8, Jesus says, that's me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And when darkness overwhelms you and your heart desires more darkness because darkness is all you know, it seems less frightening to stay in the dark than to go to the light. It's terrifying if you're in darkness to think about what the light might expose and uncover. And that's certainly true, of course, of the unbeliever. But Zechariah sings a song of salvation, but also a song of sanctification. That anyone who comes to this light of Christ finds salvation. But the promise of verse 79 is that the light of Christ is, is kind of a guide into this way of peace, which implies a kind of journey, a walk with Christ. So, friends, you may still have dark places in your heart, and Zechariah's prophecy is an invitation to lay your heart before the light. Are there places in your own heart where you refuse to let Christ guide you to the way of peace? Are there places where you have grown bitter and doubted the Lord? If you think he feels distant from you or unfaithful to you or harsh to you, it may be because you are not dealing with the God of the Bible, but you are dealing with the God of your own imagination. Because Zechariah's song says, when God's faithfulness speaks louder than your doubts, you learn praise. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for salvation in so many methods and forms, but always through Christ. We thank you for showing forth these promises and for being faithful to them all. We pray, O oh God, that you would cast out our doubts and lead us to truly praise you, not only during this worship service, but through our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.